Don't call it a comb back. I'll have hair for years. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, girl? Grab my glasses. I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. I hate these guys. I don't know why you don't, and I'll be in the car. This is the Press Box. Makeup stuff. Tyler Bischoff. That player is known as the Scrabble Jackass and is then handed the box top for any further rule clarifications. Adam Candy. I can't hate him. He is so transparent in his self-interest that I kind of respect him. Would I buy a car from him? On ESPN Las Vegas. out again today but we will talk to him at 9 a.m from raiders training camp adam candy is in once again it is the first day of free agency in the nhl so we will see if the golden knights make any uh additions to the roster today but we're starting with mark andre Fleury. the first bite why did bill foley decide to trade mark andre Fleury now so we had two interesting stories yesterday. One coming from Dave Shane of the Review Journal, where he got this quote from Bill Foley. I'm disappointed that this was the outcome. I really feel terrible about it. Unfortunately, that's reality. He added that he finally capitulated to trading flurry. Quote, I said, okay, I understand. I get it. There was also a story in The Athletic uh, from Pittsburgh that said that Bill Foley blocked a trade that would have sent Marc-Andre Fleury to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Now, they did not specify in that story when that was. I'm assuming that that happened last offseason and not this offseason. But according to that story, the Golden Knights were ready to trade Marc-Andre Fleury at some point, and Bill Foley stepped in and said, no, we will not be trading Marc-Andre Fleury. So Adam... Why did that change now? Why did that change on July 27th of 2021 that Bill Foley, who had previously blocked a trade of Flurry, like what, what did he get now? Why is, why is things different for Bill Foley? I mean, it appears from everything that we've read over the last 24 hours that the cap situation was made out to Bill Foley to be such that there was no other option than to trade Marc-Andre Flurry. Now, we know that to be somewhat true, kind of exacerbated by trying to get the deal done for Alec Martinez before free agency started. And so could the Golden Knights have taken this farther? Could they have run it down the road a little bit in the offseason? Sure. Because as we talked about yesterday, before the flurry trade, you can be over the cap in the offseason. Now, would this deal have been there for them later? I think that's the question you have to ask is with free agency starting right now, then that cap space that Chicago had just sitting there was not going to be there anymore. They're going to find a way to use it one way or the other. So, I mean, that's at least the surface level here of what got done and why Bill Foley, uh, to use their word, capitulated. I am I am curious sort of how George McPhee and Kelly McCrimmon sold it. Like, did they sell it as you're saying is, hey, we need to do this now. We need to do this before free agency starts when teams, specifically Chicago, still have a lot of cap space because I mean it's basically the same scenario as they were in last year when they got Alex Petrangelo this team was way over the salary cap and last year you believe the athletic they had a trade in place to send flurry away to Pittsburgh that would have handled their cap problems 
but Foley vetoed it. And in response, the Golden Knights had to trade away Nate Schmidt and Paul Stasny and get round, get back mid-round draft picks. So I, I just wonder how, I, I guess my question is, I what happened last year versus what happened this year and why Flurry was okay with it? Like, I wonder if it was the loss in the playoffs, like losing to Montreal and how much McPhee and McCrum were able to say, listen, if we had had one more skater for five or $7 million, maybe that Montreal series plays out differently and you're in the Stanley Cup because, again, you compare the two scenarios, we had been saying it all last offseason, throughout this regular season, and now again until yesterday, they were better off with only one of these goalies on the roster. Everyone had been saying that, but for whatever reason, Bill Foley didn't want to trade Marc-Andre Fleury, and the Golden Knights never moved on from one of those goalies until yesterday. Something changed, and I wonder how much of that, like McPhee and McCrimmon, were able to sell to Bill Foley versus Bill Foley maybe saying, oh, we lost, we really do need to change something. I think there are a couple of points that go along with what you're saying. First of all, to the idea of trading Fleury to Pittsburgh, and let's say last off season or any trade last off season, not all trades are created the same on both sides. Uh, on the Golden Knights side, what they had last off season was a goaltender with $14 million left on the books over two years, coming off one of his worst seasons at an age that suggested maybe he's slipping. Right? Maybe this is the end for Mark Andre Fleury. Uh, what they had this offseason was a goaltender with only one year left at $7 million coming off winning the Vezina. So they had an asset that was completely different. And I don't know that we can look at that the same as we do look at whatever Pittsburgh was offering last year. Maybe it wasn't as much cap relief. Who knows? Maybe it was another uh, player who was going to stay in the Pittsburgh organization. Like We, we don't really uh, know if it's going to be similar <laughs> to what they ultimately did with Chicago so I think you have to you have to keep that in mind second of all some of this when you talk about McCrimmon and McPhee comes back to one of the quotes that came out from Kelly McCrimmon the general manager of the Golden Knights yesterday when he said basically from the time that Marc-Andre Fleury was taken in the expansion draft they knew there was a clock that was ticking they knew that they were already looking for their next guy and so when Robin Leonard was signed, that seems to kind of be the end of things for Marc-Andre Fleury in terms of the minds of the Golden Knights management. Yeah, and and that quote from Kelly McCrimmon basically solidified some of the ways that we haven't really heard Marc-Andre Fleury say it, but we've had reports, and Alan Walsh has said it, where they kind of saw it as he's not the guy for this franchise anymore, that he's not Pete DeBoer's guy, that he's not the front office's guy anymore. And McCrimmon saying that basically confirmed that, that yes, they were looking for his replacement and they found it. And at some point, the replacement becomes the guy. And that would have been last year if Flurry hadn't been a Vesno winning goalie. So there was uh, another part of yesterday that I thought was interesting, mainly the response from fans, but also a lot of, of media members too, saying that the Golden Knights owe their players more, owed Marc-Andre Flurry more because... Flurry found out he was traded on Twitter and Kelly McCrimmon gave an explanation yesterday of, Hey, the trade wasn't completed before it got leaked out and the media tweeted out before they told anybody about it. Um, but you've also had multiple instances with this organization where Brad Hunt was told he was traded in an elevator. Oscar Lindbergh was still on the ice at practice after he had been traded in the Mark stone deal. And William Carlson had to tell him when Oscar Lindbergh came off the ice. Um, do you think the golden Knights owe their players more? No, the Golden Knights don't owe their players more. The Golden Knights owe Marc-Andre Fleury more. Brad Hunt could have been told in a subway, and I wouldn't hey, care. Hey, you don't speak ill of Brad Hunt. I didn't say Jake Bischoff. <laughs> Brad Hunt could have been told anywhere. That doesn't matter. 
I'm not worried about what you do with the average player. I'm worried about what you do with the face of the franchise. And that's the part that I still can't get my head around almost 24 hours later. When you give the excuse of, well, the trade call wasn't done. Don't talk about logistics about this thing because we're <laughs> dealing with a veteran player. We're dealing with not only Alan Walsh, who's been doing this forever, but Marc-Andre Fleury, who's been doing this forever. So what were there are only two concerns that could come out of that. One, you're going to get Marc-Andre Fleury riled up over the idea that he might be traded when it might not happen. Well, let's blow that one out of the water here right now because every report we've read has said that Kelly McCrimmon has been in touch with Marc-Andre Fleury and Alan Walsh throughout the offseason yep. to let them know that trades were in the works. So what then would have been the harm of saying to him, hey, it looks like it's about to get done? There's no harm in that. The flip side would be that, wh what, are you worried that Alan Walsh or Marc-Andre Fleury are going to take that and leak it out there and they're going to get it to the news before you do? Well, you also, Kelly McCrimmon, said that, well, these things always leak out there, Right. The news always gets out there one way or the other. Well, if that's the case, shouldn't you be even more sensitive with the guy who is, as you put it, the most popular player you've ever seen in professional sports? Not only for how it looks to that player and that player's management, but to the fans, for God's sake. Because that seems to be what the sentiment is in general, is that you did Mark andre Fleury dirty by handling it this way. Yeah, see, I, I didn't view it as a big deal. Like, and based on what McCrimmon said, his explanation of all the logistics of it included on July 12th, they told Marc-Andre Fleury that the Chicago Blackhawks were interested in trading for him and that as their, their exit meeting was June 29th and that at their exit meeting, McCrimmon told Fleury that they weren't sure what their future was at goaltending and they might have to make a move. Like, I, I sure, does it look bad that Marc-Andre Fleury was either on Twitter or a teammate shot him a text message of a screenshot and said, hey, what's this? Sure, but it's not like they blindsided Marc-Andre Fleury. Like, that to me is the part of this that I don't think is a huge, massive deal. Marc-Andre Fleury knew that he was on the trading block. He was fully aware that he could be traded. And the day that it happened, he finds out on Twitter 30 minutes before the team actually calls him or whatever that timeline ended up being. I, I just I just can't find myself getting that upset about it that the Golden Knights did Mark Andre Fleury wrong when according to Kelly McCrimmon he was made aware that he was on the trading block and that they were having conversations with this specific team about trading him there. Yeah, we're carrying water for them that we don't have to carry right now. Quite honestly, like like and I know Ed did this a little bit yesterday and talked about you know, the the reality of it all. And the thing of it is, there is reality, of course, and and we're the ones who talk all the time about the business of it, the cap and managing it and putting together a roster and thinking years ahead, et cetera, et cetera. And in 99% of cases, I'm fine with the fact that it's a business. And I think you think people get too attached and too invested when it comes to professional sports, because it, uh, like the old Jerry Seinfeld bit goes, we're cheering for laundry, right? Like in the end, it's just whoever's wearing the jersey at any given time. I feel differently when it comes to Marc-Andre Fleury and what he meant to this franchise and what he meant to this fan base, because whether or not you warned him, you still didn't tell him when it happened. Uh, and there's still an indignity involved in that that I'm not comfortable with when it comes to Marc-Andre Fleury and this franchise. And all I have to do to make sense of it for me, Tyler, is to compare it to my own workplace. If I were warned in my workplace to say, hey, by the way, um, 
you know, times are tough right now and there's a chance we might have to do some cuts and I just didn't want you to be shocked by that. Well, I'm not going to feel better two weeks later if I learn about it on Twitter. I'm not, I'm not going to feel any better about that. I'm still going to look at it and say, God, you couldn't have at least told me. Uh, like, I, yeah, I know there was some warning, but whether he was a little bit surprised, as one story suggested, he was completely shocked. But if he, whether he's a little bit surprised or shocked, I just think there's a better way to do the business that we keep talking about. Would you really feel better about getting fired if your boss called you versus if you saw a tweet breaking the news? Absolutely, I would. And as someone who has been laid off from multiple jobs and laid off in different ways from multiple jobs, I know that there there is a different level of dignity in how they choose to handle it. And and again, I'm not a professional athlete making $7 million a year. I don't have that to fall back on. But at the same time, there's a way that this franchise has put Marc-Andre Fleury out there. There's a way that they have marketed him. There's a way that they have allowed this fan base to look at him as not only the guy who is, quote, the face of the franchise, but as someone who is worth a lot of goodwill to them as well. And that's kind of where I look at it and say, if he's worth that goodwill to you out there to everybody else, then give him a little bit of that back. All right, coming up next, we'll jump into the Raiders because training camp is here and John Gruden is very excited about the weakest position on the team. Well, we're a C, you know, we're eight and eight. I think that's you know, the best of the worst, the worst of the best. We have some good moments. We prove we can compete in the AFC West. You know, we're a couple plays away from, from being really good in the AFC West. And we prove we can compete on the road. And I'm hoping that I, I can um, somehow find a way to help our team compete better in our Allegiant Stadium here because it is a spectacular place. But uh, I'm not into grades. You know, I'm into winning championships. And we've got a long way to go. And we're confident that we're getting better. And, um, we need our, our fans to help us, that's for sure. I do love that John Gruden, after giving his t- own team a grade and giving a 30-second explanation, then followed it up with, I'm not into grades. Uh, but John Gruden spoke to the media yesterday as the Raiders training camp has arrived. And, as usual, John Gruden had quite a few interesting things to say Maybe the most interesting, though, is that John Gruden said that the secondary will be a strength of the team, and quote, if it isn't, we made some real mistakes. Uh, Adam, is there any way the secondary is a strength of this team? The way the secondary is a strength of this team is if young players truly do get better every year. Like, you have to hope that what you've done in terms of drafting has more fruits to bear than what you've seen thus far. That's it. Like, you, if you're going to dig back with this team, then you're going to say, okay, then is Trayvon Mullen ready to take a step up? Is Damon Arnett ready to contribute at all? Um, frankly, even Gary and Conley is uh, not all that far back in the history of this team. It just has <laughs> not panned out for them drafting in the secondary for quite a while. A Gary and Conley mentioned. I love it. Um, John Gruden also said yesterday that the safety positions are unresolved is the word that he used. Now, they drafted Trayvon Morig, the safety out of TCU, in the second round. Uh, He's projected by most to be the starting free safety on this team. And then Jonathan Abram is still projected as the starting strong safety, and it seems as though everybody thinks Gus Bradley is going to use him uh, as more of a, you know, box safety where he's not going to have to cover deep down the field very much. But Gruden said that those positions were unresolved. I mean... I, I have a hard time seeing this being anything but the biggest weakness on the team. 
I mean, Jonathan Abram was not good last year. And the idea that, hey, he'll be better if he plays closer to the line of scrimmage, I guess he can be better because he can't get beat down the field as often, but he was a poor tackler last year too. It's not like Jonathan Abram was a great tackling safety that, oh, he just couldn't cover down the field. No, he he was kind of bad at everything last year. And then you throw in Damon Arnett, who was one of the worst corners in the league and couldn't stay healthy. Trayvon Mullen, eh, we guess, I guess we can give him like an average cornerback. Like you're, you're really counting on, like you said, those players getting better. And like Trayvon Morig stepping in as a fr- uh, rookie and being a good free safety as a rookie. And I guess Casey Hayward, their signing could, that might be their best cornerback this year, being a legitimately good cornerback. And I just, I can't see more than like maybe one or two of those things happening, which at the end of the day is going to make the secondary a weakness. Like in the end with this team, I'm not as worried about the safety position if the corners are any good and if the pass rush is any good. And the biggest problem that I see for the Las Vegas Raiders is that, do you know who their highest rated cornerback by pro football focus was last year, Tyler? Oh, that's a good question. I feel like yeah. I should know this. Um, well, here's 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 the answer <laughs> since this is radio and look, you looking on your computer is not going to be very good radio. He was rated number 87 in the league and it was Nevin Lawson. Ooh, Nevin Lawson. Yeah, um, Trayvon Mullen wasn't far behind, and then out of position, LaMarcus Joyner was 97th, and that's the whole top 100 cornerbacks in the league. <laughs> so I, I don't know that I can look at the the cornerbacks, or the secondary in particular, and say it's their fault, because what part of this team was working defensively? It all has to do as a whole ecosystem, and... There's no pass rush to make the cornerbacks look better. There's no cornerbacks to hold on and give you some coverage sacks. Like, all of it has to work in tandem. And so I think the cornerbacks, more than anything, have to hope that Yannick Ngakwe is a beast this year. They have to hope that there are more sacks, the ball has to come out quicker, the teams generally feel more pressure to throw the ball when they're not ready to throw the ball. Because otherwise, what we've seen is just straight coverage-wise, it's not a good secondary. So what did you make of John Gruden saying yesterday about Cleveland Furl? I think his best pass rush might be inside. Duh. <laughs> Do you want me to say more? Like, duh. Like, we've been watching this now for for the entirety of the time that we've had Cleveland Farrell on this roster. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? At least you see John Gruden admitting the fact that Cleveland Farrell's not going to be part of your outside mix. How's he going to get on the field if he is? Yannick Ngakwe and Max Crosby are starting on the edges. So how do you keep Cleveland Farrell on the field? Well, you got to play him inside. And so is this ultimately an admission that Cleveland Farrell was overdrafted? Yes, but you know what? We didn't need that admission. We've been watching it. It's not that Cleveland Farrell is a bad player. It's that he's not the number four overall pick in the draft. So good on John Gruden for saying it because it's what we've all been watching. I am fascinated to see how good Yannick Ngakwe is when they're expecting him to be the best edge rusher on the team for an entire season, because they need him to be better than Max Crosby. They need an edge rusher that actually commands multiple offensive linemen that makes it easier for Max Crosby to go and get to the quarterback. That makes it easier for Cleveland Furl or one of the 17 interior linemen they signed this offseason to have some pressures, to have some quarterback hits on the year and like you said it, it ties into the secondary and if they're going to look any better this year it might simply be how good is Yannick Ngakwe 
Because if he, if he is good, like if he's a legitimately good edge rusher that's able to command double teams and able to make it easier for the other defensive linemen to get there and obviously get there himself as well, then it's going to make the secondary look better. It's going to make everything on this team look better. But if he struggles, if he's just sort of an average pass rusher, if he's just as good as Max Crosby, there's not going to be much different about this team this year. Like you're hoping that what? Corey Littleton has a more simplified role or something like that. Like there isn't much reason to hope if Yannick Ngakwe isn't good this year defensively. The problem with that, Tyler, is that over the course of Yannick Ngakwe's career, he's been better in the Max Crosby role. Yeah. He's been better as the guy who benefits from attention paid to other defenders who demand it. Now, could that change? Absolutely. I just don't know that it changes as deep into Yannick Ngakwe's career as has been the case, can Gus Bradley scheme something that makes it that way? Well, we're clearly, uh, you know, from the John Gruden perspective, hoping so. So, the, you know, I, I don't know if one can be Batman instead of Robin. I don't know what two Robins gets you, uh, but it appears that it is a bit of a double Robin situation right you, now. You know what narrative I've loved, and this was honestly going on during last season, was about... Corey Littleton and that he had too much on his plate and that he was thinking too much. And then they fired Paul Gunther. Rod Marinelli was going to simplify things. And uh-oh, Corey Littleton looked a little bit better to end the season. And now again, it's uh-oh, things are simplified for Corey Littleton. The reason I've loved that so much is like, it's implying that Corey Littleton is dumb and the rest of the defense is dumb because Paul Gunther had some successful defenses in Cincinnati. And it's not like he came here and just said, I'm changing everything I've ever done. Like, the idea that the defense was too complicated for Corey Littleton last year and the rest of the players, I've always found that to be a hilarious narrative about why the defense struggled. Tyler, remind me for a second, where did Corey Littleton play before he came to Las Vegas? The Rams. Do, do the Rams just say to all 11 defenders, hey, uh, let's hit somebody today. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Corey Littleton looked better in that Rams defense because of Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey and everybody else that was around him versus what was around him in Vegas. So it's one of two things here. It's either that, that the scheme and the players in Los Angeles help him look that much better, or that you didn't evaluate him properly before you signed him. So stop with this. Stop with this is the narrative. And oh, by the way, speaking of narratives, just a quick aside for, for John Gruden. I want to give that verbal jujitsu that he did on the question about the grade an absolute A. I want him to get an A for it because... A. Uh, thank you. Uh, not only does he deserve that for the way he handled it talking about grades, but the way he pivoted the question to... Well, we were a couple of we were just a couple of plays away from, you know, being really good. No, you were a couple of very obvious plays from being six and ten. And also then he pivoted to talking about the fans in the stadium. Yeah, you know it's not fun talking about our eight and eight record, but you know what's fun? Talking about that shiny new stadium we get to show off. He is good. Coming up next, your own Weitzman joins the show. Giannis, this was the second game in a row you went out early in the first quarter. I'm just curious what was going on there. I wanted to uh what the hell you guys say politely? I want to take a, a tinkle. A, a tinkle? Yeah, yeah. I want to take a tinkle and came back. Yeah. That's, that's, is, that's polite, right? Tinkle is polite, yeah. Both games. I want to take a tinkle and went back. Joining us now, your own Weitzman, who covers the NBA for Fox Sports. Now, listen, you've written in the past about players having to go to the bathroom during games. 
So when you ask Giannis that question and he tells you he had to go to the bathroom, was that like your crowning moment as a reporter? <laughs> I can't, that's the, um, that, you guys got me legitimately laughing with the, uh, the joiner there. Um, was that crowning moment? Yeah, except I'm calling BS. I think Giannis was, uh, we'll say, I'll say lying. Is that too strong? Oh. Um, I, here's my theory, right? If Giannis, who has a knee injury, actually leaves the court to go to the locker room, doesn't the broadcast pick that up? I don't remember the broadcast ever showing him going back to the locker room. So uh, I think we still do not know the answer as to what actually happened there. Okay, so in your reporting, your vigorous reporting, your thorough reporting on players leaving the court to go to the bathroom, how often did you get anybody saying, yeah, I've lied about it because I was doing something else? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, how often did you... Did, <laughs> Not not much lying. Not much. Usually they were pretty honest to themselves. Maybe in public after, but usually they, they were pretty honest um, to themselves, or to their teammates, or whatever you know, and all that stuff, and to the coaches, and you know, in private, and things like that. So we've come full circle, though, to where we have some players that maybe are trying to hide it, or like uh, Lamar Jackson did in the <laughs> yeah. NFL. So now they're using it as an excuse for something else. Yeah, it could be. Listen, I know I'm, I'm throwing accusations at Giannis here, so maybe I'm wrong. But I just, I, I genuinely actually found that weird that he said that. And maybe, maybe the broadcast missed it. It is possible. So I, I, I find it doubtful that they wouldn't be showing Giannis going back to the locker room. Maybe it's Peter Sam. Who knows? So in the actual NBA games, uh, Milwaukee Bucks win a title. Giannis wins a title. Staying with his original small market team. Do you believe it actually gives other small market teams hope that they can keep their superstar and say, hey, look, Giannis won a title. You should stay here because we can win a title too? Um, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I, one thing I, I was going to say, every situation is different. Um, I do think it, there, there is a model, a blueprint here to follow that you develop guys and it's okay to fail sometimes. And if you stay strong and you don't make panic moves, but you be aggressive. So they were aggressive in their trade of Drew Holiday, for example, right? Um, which, and it's kind of ironic because a couple of years ago, they were not aggressive enough. They let Malcolm Brogdon go basically to skimp on um, some luxury tax payments. Um, but they reversed that now. Um, so, yeah, it, it is interesting. Or I wouldn't say it gives them hope. I, maybe I'd put it the other way. I'm kind of curious to see how players, from the player side, how they react. Whether they see, oh wait, like look what happens. You stay with your team. There is a benefit. It is different, and you know, I'm, I'm pro quote unquote player empowerment. I'm not anti that. And I, I get why players want to change teams and all that stuff. But I do think in this era and among those conversations, one thing does get lost that there are benefits to staying with one franchise. And you do gain things. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to that you have to prioritize them if you're a star player. But there are benefits to be had, you know, in terms of becoming an icon in that city and uh, and becoming a hero and just the overall, I don't know, the connection to the city and going through things and overcoming it. And maybe the Giannis um, example can show that. We'll, or maybe some stars will see Giannis and say, oh, I want that, not as opposed to seeing what, you know, the Nets were this year or whatever and saying, I want that. No, 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 your own. I need you to, no, stop. No, please, you need to stop that because that's not how Zion gets to New York. Uh, um, I, 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 Zion doesn't get to New York by following Giannis, uh, but but seriously, uh, when we look at the situation with the Pelicans and and what they did with the Valanciunas trade and uh, sent out some some serious uh, current and future assets uh, in order to do it, do you think if they set this whole thing up to be able to sign Kyle Lowry and and build something around Zion, do you think that that's enough to? 
keep him there longer term? Because obviously they've already changed the coach this offseason. The rumblings that we've heard are all that Zion and or his family are not happy. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, so is it enough to keep Zion? I don't know. I don't have a line into Zion's camp. Um, you also, it, it does, you, you don't have to, like, I guess guys today that can ask for trades, but you, it's, you want to toe the line between panicking um, and also making sure you take care of business in a way that makes these guys want to stay. Um, so the, the Kyle Lowry, I mean, clearly they, they've cleared money so they can go after a free agent and we would assume a point guard, right? And it's a little funny that they don't want to re-sign Lonzo. But they seem adamant. I shouldn't say they seem. We're all assuming that they don't want to re-sign Lonzo Ball, um, even though there's, you know, he's been pretty good. And he might be a guy that builds. and seems like him and Zion get along well and he can sit next to Zion. Um, so it's interesting there, but they clearly decided that it's okay to get rid of some assets to clear some cap space, and they're going to try to be like that's, I think they're looking at what the Phoenix Suns did as, hey, why can't we be that, right? Why can't we take that leap in one year? Or why can't we be like the Atlanta Hawks and have our transcendent star and make the right moves around them and make this giant leap? Uh, you wrote the book Tanking to the Top on the 76ers. Uh, do you think you should have named that Tanking to the Second Round? Yes. <laughs> and what what happens? I mean, is Ben Simmons gone? Like, what, where where do the Sixers go from here? I mean, they're definitely looking at trading him. Um, we know Daryl Morey's not going to. We know Daryl Morey's not going to um, trade him for nothing and or sell low. Right? He's going to hold out, and a lot of other executives kind of get frustrated. By the way, yeah, Daryl Morey's kind of the guy in your fantasy league who throws out these ridiculous offers all the time. Um, that's him. Um, so we're going to, going to try to trade them, and I think they should trade them. They probably believe they should trade them. The question is, will they be getting? Will they find a suitor who can give them back what they feel like is fair value? Um, and they're going to treat Ben Simmons like an All NBA player, and they're going to look at it and say, "What do All NBA players look go for? Forget even All NBA. Look what Drew Holiday went for. Drew Holiday went for, um, you know, all the picks and uh, young guys and all that stuff. So you can ask Ben Simmons; they're going to want more than that, right? They're going to want closer to the James Harden package. He's not quite as good, but um, that's what they're going to want. So can they find a middle team there? You know, teams that keep popping up the names, both publicly and privately, Raptors and uh, Heat, and uh, I guess they, you know we know they want. We know the Sixers are going to want to pounce if Bradley Beal's available, and that would probably be a trade that they would try to do. Um, or look at to look at, and then obviously there's the Damian Lillard stuff in Portland. So will anything happen over the next few days? I don't know. I'm a little. I, I, my read is I, I'd be surprised, but you never know what could happen. With the Ben Simmons situation, you're on. We've had some discussions around this in the past, but what do you think? is his value as viewed throughout the league as opposed to, you know, I think there are a lot of folks who look at it and say, oh, the shooting and you can't hit a three, blah, 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 blah. Uh, there's obviously a lot, a lot more to Ben Simmons' game than that. But how do you think rival GMs will look to Philadelphia? Are they going to value him at a superstar level in terms of an offer? Depends who, right? Depends who. Yeah. He's a polarizing player around the um – He's a, polar, a polarizing player around the league in terms of how other teams and executives view him. Some think he's great, you know, he's been a better situation, be the team that builds around him, not with Embiid, better um, ecosystem, all that stuff. Some think he is just, you know, he's a lost cause, that he's one of these guys who you'll never win with. Um, it really depends. I, I think some of these smaller market teams, like Minnesota really wants it on Ben Simmons, right? That Stuff like that makes sense because teams like that are like, you know, they have a couple guys, but, you know, we can't get stars. Um a team like Miami, it's it's interesting, right? It's interesting. Maybe Toronto, we know they're kind of they can be aggressive in their approach. They might think, you know, it's worth a buy low. But to answer your question, it really depends who. Do you like three on three Olympic basketball? 
I have not watched oh, a minute of it. Oh, come on. It's great. All right, fine. Have, is you, it? have you watched any of the five-on-five five men's team, I assume? I, I have actually not. So I was at the finals, and I just got back, and those games were on, like, at 2 a.m., and then I can't um, – and then I see on Twitter, it's hard to even find what channel they're on. So I have actually not watched any. I know they, they – I mean, I know they blew what I ran last night, so good for us. Good for them. Good for us, them, whatever it is. Um, but I have not watched much of them. How are you not? How are you going to supposed to give us a fire Greg Popovich take if you're not watching him? <laughs> I mean, the, the thing that's interesting about Popovich is like it's it, he's been and the only place he has failure in his career really is uh, with Team USA, <laughs> right? He tried out in '72, didn't make it, um, and he was part of he was an assistant on that 2004 Larry Brown Iverson Marbury disaster team. He was an assistant. It was a uh, children two, I believe, um, when they had a disastrous sixth place finish at the world, whatever the tournament was called. Then, then there was last two thousand, the two thousand, well, the eighteen FIBA Cup or whatever we called that, where they lost. Now he's losing. It's it's interesting that that's the one place he's had failure. And given we know his background is an Air Force um, grad, and you know, I know some people might disagree given on his politics, but he's clearly somebody who values. Um, Patriotism. It, it's it's interesting that the one place he's failed is probably a place where he would, where the success would be the most to him. So I find that interesting. But other than that, I got nothing. How long do you think he coaches in San Antonio? Um, that's a great question that people around the NBA ask all the time and are a bit confused by. It. Like what the end? You know, some people thought he'd be out already, right? Um, so who, I, I do not know. I don't know. It's, I would I would have thought he would have been gone already. So another year, another two years. Um, but then they let this guy Will Hardy, who was there. Um, his lead assistant, who was thought to be the uh, kind of the, um, the next in line, um, he just took an assistant job with the Celtics, which would you never know, but that would seem to indicate that he hasn't even promised anything with the Spurs over the next year or two, right? So I don't know; it, it's strange. So let's get back to important things because I need to talk about the Knicks more. Oh boy! Um, right. And you mentioned yeah. the Damian Lillard. You mentioned the Damian Lillard situation. Is that an appropriate? place for the Knicks to be pushing right now or, or how do you think this team should be going forward after this year because it certainly feels like Tom Thibodeau got the most out of what was there on this roster it's just that now you have one more year before you have to deal with Julius Randle again you you can maybe believe in what you saw with the step up from RJ Barrett and then beyond that it's kind of tough to say who's there for the long term yeah but it is interesting right so as as good as they were last year as impressive um they, um, they're, they, you know, if you look at like what they built for the future, it's still maybe Randall, it's RJ topping it quickly. Like it's not like the other guys; they're all they're all um, placements, right? You know, it's one year placement, the temporary holds. Um, so for them, I mean, yeah, if Damian Lillard, Bradley Beal, those are two guys that go all in for basically, right? You can haggle over the pieces, but those are two guys you go, in my view, you would go all in, especially Lillard, right? He's that good and that transcendent and that big of a star and I, just in, in every sense of the word. Right. Um, so him, you go all in for it. I don't know if it's a fit there because if you giving up everything they get Lillard, then like, do you have anything that left that he would then want to play with you? Um, so that to me would be a concern. Yeah. This is one of the big questions with the Knicks is like, how do they get to their next spot? Like what's their, what's their long-term goal? The free agency, it's just, you're going to try to get the disgruntled star, I guess, but just the free agents, um, the guys are all resigned. It, it's, it's a little hard to see what the pathway is here, other than just being smart and prudent as you go forward. I um, I'd be surprised if we see any major moves this off season or over the next you know week or so. Um, I would expect them to do more of what they did last year. Maybe be a little more aggressive in terms of um, acquiring talent, but I would think nothing that hampers them long term. Uh, what hilarious nondescript team in the East knocks them out of the playoffs next year? Is it like Charlotte or something like that? <laughs> 
Hey, don't hate on Charlotte, man. They're good. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, excuse me, LaMelo Ball. Um, yeah, no, it's actually funny. I mean, let's, but it was a thing, right? If you're the Knicks, like the playoffs are not, if you make the playoffs again next year, I think that's a big success. I really do. I think a lot of people, I think you're going to see in preseason, like, you know, previews and stuff. You're going to see a lot of people, um, a lot of people have them out of the playoff picture looking in just thinking that last year was more of an aberration, not to take it away from them, but just, you know, pandemic year, a lot of people performing over their heads. Let's see what happens this year. So if you can make the playoffs the second year and maintain your long-term flexibility and outlook, I think that would be a raging success. Well, he is your own Weitzman again, covering the NBA for Fox sports. As always, we appreciate it. Thanks guys. How do you feel about that, Adam? As a Knicks fan, you just happy to be back again next year. That was your thoughts this year. What I want as a Knicks fan is to win the offseason. If we win during the regular season, that's great. I got to feel what that was like this year. But I haven't gotten to feel winning the offseason pretty much ever as a Knicks fan. Uh, frozen so, envelope. like, I just want to see what it's like to, uh, to I, yeah, that frozen envelope. I was not many years old. So... I just want to see a big free agent who is not Amari Stoudemire look at New York and say, let's do this. That is the exact opposite of how you should feel as a sports fan. Nope. 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 That's, this, is, this, is the, uh, this is the Stockholm Syndrome I have with James Dolan. Well, UNLV won the offseason because they got Tate Martell to walk on. That's next. One thing before we get started, if I give you some information, at least know the rules before you put it in the press. Red and yellow bands. They don't have to wear them in practice. That's for indoors. I got to read. We should be fine for red and yellow bands because they ain't got them on their practice. That's if you're going to report that, make sure it's right. Bruce Arians talking about the red and yellow wristbands that players have to wait in to indicate if they are vaccinated or unvaccinated. But we're going to do some UNLV football here because Sam Gordon reporting yesterday that Tate Martell is going to walk on at UNLV as an athlete. Tate Martell was one of the highest ranked quarterbacks coming out of Bishop Gorman. Was that back in 2017? I believe it was. Uh, he was at Ohio State, transferred to Miami, uh, has thrown less than 30 passes in his collegiate career. Adam, you'll, you'll, have to, you'll have to correct me if you think I'm wrong here with anything, but I can't really imagine Tate Martell being the starting quarterback for UNLV at the beginning of the season, because we have a coach in Marcus Arroyo who over the last season tried to explain why they were 0-6 and why they were uncompetitive is because they didn't get any spring practice and that they didn't, didn't get to implement their offense as much as they wanted to, that they were playing games in the season without 100% of their playbook installed. He also told us over and over that the reason Max Gillum was the quarterback that kept getting the most snaps was because he was the one that grasped the playbook, the best of those quarterbacks that were on the roster. I just can't see a way that the coach that spent the last year telling us all that is going to start a guy that walked onto the team at the end of July, basically a month before the season starts. Now, I know the quarterback position isn't exactly a good one. It's not like UNLV has a runaway favorite to start at the job. They don't even have a starter at the moment. So it's not like the bar is very high for Tate Martell to clear as far as talent at the quarterback spot. I just can't imagine after last year, Tate Martell is walking onto this team in July and starting at quarterback. I would believe that if we'd seen 
anything out of the quarterback room at UNLV over the last 12 months to make us believe that there was a clear guy there. Even if there were not a starter named, that there was someone that Marcus Arroyo really believed, hey, this is my guy no matter what. Like, I want this quarterback to be the one who emerges from the discussion. Now, the other piece you have to factor in is if a guy like Tate Martell, who has the talent to have been the number two prospect, et cetera, et cetera, if that guy with that talent, despite all the trials and tribulations that he's been through, if that guy wants to walk on to a team that's 0-6 and and had a huge talent deficit in the conference, what choice does he have? What choice does he have? I think you have to bring that guy in and throw him into the competition and see what happens. And I think, honestly... If Tate Martell were to come in and somehow win a quarterback competition, then maybe Marcus Arroyo would get some credit for coming off the whole idea of, well, you know, we just didn't have enough practice. We just didn't have enough time. <laughs> I mean, yes, it would it would make Marcus Arroyo's it pretty much everything he said last year somewhat irrelevant. Also, I mean, he talked to Mike Ramallah of Las Vegas Sun a month ago and said that the starting quarterback for week one was already on the roster. And he was like, I don't have any more scholarships to give out. We're not bringing in anybody else. Now, technically, they didn't give out a scholarship here. They're bringing him on as a walk-on. But he said a month ago that the starting quarterback was on the roster. So it would make pretty much everything Arroyo said untrue over the last year. But I just I just don't see it. Like, I don't see how you can bring Tate Martell in as a walk-on. And again, I don't know if this is just, I don't know if this is irrelevant, but the idea in Sam Gordon's tweet that he's walking on not as a quarterback, but as an athlete also struck me as odd. Like, are they, are they afraid? Is Martell afraid? Like I, I didn't quite comprehend why he's walking on as an athlete. If the goal here is for him to be the starting quarterback. Well, it's for the same reason, Tyler, that you say that you have the starting quarterback on your roster already, right? You're managing the guys that you have already. You're managing expectations. You're managing egos. You're managing guys' personalities and how the team relates to itself. You don't want, as a head coach at a college program, for there to be a constant fear among recruits that I battle my butt off for a year. I come in, I work hard in the offseason, and then some dude walks in off the street and takes my job. I think he's trying to set up the idea that there's going to be a real competition among these quarterbacks. So if that happens, then then so be it, um, because that also means that you had 12 months to prove yourself and you didn't prove it enough to where Tate Martell isn't part of the discussion. I am also curious about the walk on part of this. Tate Martell didn't have a scholarship offer anywhere like he couldn't. Have, there wasn't another school that was offering him a scholarship. At this point, if you're in Tate Martell's shoes, maybe you just want to take the shortest path to playing time, considering yeah. what you've had in your history. Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, and maybe that is what it is. I just I just think it's odd that the, a lot of UNLV fans think the savior of the season is a guy that's walking on to an 0-6 program and has not he's thrown like as many college passes as you and I have over the last two years. I think there just needs to be a little bit of brake pumping here on what Tate Martell's actually going to be for UNLV, and I'll say it, I'm going to be shocked if he starts game one at quarterback. Maybe he's playing somewhere else, but I don't think it's a quarterback in week one.